Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Uh, today, Rich and I are very excited to have uh, with us a good friend and one of America's most influential and well-known national security and foreign policy experts, Tom Donlan, who has served in so many capacities inside the U.S. government uh, with distinction as national security uh, advisor to President Obama. Uh, as a close uh, associate and confidant of Warren Christopher, and uh, really to the entire Democratic foreign policy establishment. He currently serves as the chairman of the BlackRock Investment Institute, a firm he joined after his uh, distinguished service in the Obama administration. Uh, Tom has agreed to join us today to talk a little bit about his uh, experience uh, in foreign policy and how he's thinking about Asia. But Tom, uh, your career began uh, long before President Obama's election. I just want to uh, take you back, maybe give the listeners a, a view into how you even got started in Washington and in, in politics. Your, your career really started in the politics field and not in the national security field. Tell us a little bit about how that how that got started. Okay. Well, that's right. First of all, it's great to be here, uh, Rich it's and great uh, to Kurt. See you. Thanks for having me here today. Uh, I did start out in politics. Uh, I had the uh, privilege of working for three presidents, beginning with President Carter in 1977, but mainly in political roles. You know, I managed the convention in 1980 and in 84, uh, but then took a turn towards uh, national security and foreign policy in the mid 1980s, really uh, uh, largely under the influence of Warren Christopher. Uh, which really underscores the importance of mentors in uh, in life generally and in policy and government uh, specifically. Uh, Christopher, uh, Warren Christopher obviously had been a deputy attorney general and deputy um, secretary of state during the Carter years, deputy attorney general during the Johnson uh, years. Um, and he uh, asked me to join his law firm when I graduated from law school. Uh, I hadn't intended to do that. I had intended to go into, uh, go into uh, more political roles. And he said, you could, you can come to my law firm, uh, and actually learn something and, uh, and take on, uh, take on some substance. And it, and it began really, as I said, a 30 year, a 30 year journey, uh, working through foreign policy and national security, which is really guided, guided by him. Tom, and he became he like? my law partner. What was he like as a mentor? Uh, he was a, uh, Christopher was a mid century American type. Uh, he grew up in North Dakota he went out to California. Uh, he was the first uh, editor of the Stanford Law Review and was a law clerk to Felix Frankfurter on the Supreme Court. Uh, but he was that type that was uh, had, a, had a spine of steel, great determination, but very modest uh, and uh, determined. Uh, and it really is kind of a mid-century type uh, in America. And he really kind of embodied that. He was committed to perfection and uh, everything that he did. He was committed to public service. Uh, he served uh, president starting with President Kennedy, beginning in the early 1960s in trade negotiations through President Johnson, President Carter, and then ultimately as Secretary of State for President Clinton. So he really was kind of a model of a lawyer statesman coming in and out of law practice to serve the country. And he was a very important uh, force and uh, influence in my life. So when you worked with him in the State Department uh, in the 90s during the uh, President Clinton's first term. What was that like? What was your relationship like? Um, what did you uh, learn during that period? Well, I came into the uh, Clinton administration uh, uh, via principally having uh, 
uh, led the preparation for President, for then Governor Clinton in his debates in 1992 um, against uh, President Bush 41 and Ross Perot. Uh, so I had had a relationship with, uh, uh, with Governor Clinton, whom I had known since the late 1970s. But then during the course of the transition, uh, I moved over to become counsel to Christopher, who had become transition director. Uh, and so we worked closely during the transition. And then went, uh, when he went to the State Department, he asked me to go to the State Department and be his uh, chief of staff. Tom, can I, can I go back to this um, kind of politics versus national security? You say you made this turn uh, with Secretary Christopher, but we first met uh, on Capitol Hill, and you would come up regularly and, and brief a group of senators and, and members of the House. Uh, you never left the politics behind, but you picked up national security and foreign policy as an expertise, and that you've carried that intersection um, the duration of your career. And that's pretty rare because there's a lot of people that do foreign policy really well, a lot of people that do politics, but this intersection is is rare. I don't know if you appreciate that or if you've, obviously you've been recruited to do all this debate preparation for every Democratic president over the last 30 years. And that that's really special. I've been really focused on national security and foreign policy though, um, again, for the last, th last three decades. But I'll tell you, there is a, there's an intersection uh, between national security and two aspects of, uh, of things that I've been lucky enough to do. One is politics. And I do think that having a keen understanding of political um, dynamics uh, is very helpful in the national security area. You know, most of the people that, uh, with whom we interact around the world are political people right. uh, in parliamentary and other systems around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it is important when you are in a foreign policy national relationship to really be able to keenly understand where the other side is coming from. The other intersection, though, is really important, I think, which is with the law. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, the legal training that I was able to get as a young person um, uh, has really uh, been a very important part of my life uh, in terms of precision, uh, commitment to uh, really kind of the highest quality, uh, being able to make an argument, uh, most importantly, being able to write, uh, which are all legal, legal skills. And I think actually I'm um, as proud of my profession today as I ever have been, because I think that the culture of lawyers and the rule of law right now in this country uh, is, a, is, a, is a very important asset that we, uh, that we have. Yeah, it's great background. So Tom, so uh, turning our attention to more recent uh, experiences as National Security Advisor, I remember one of the first uh, times I saw you brief uh, President-elect uh, Obama, you made a powerful argument about how the United States was essentially over-invested in the Middle East and that we needed to turn our attention more towards the Asia-Pacific region. And you were, I think, among all the senior officials in the U.S. government, the person who most understood the dynamics and the drama of the 21st century and that it would play out um, uh, more in Asia uh, than uh, perhaps in other regions of the world. As you look back on that experience, do you think we or do you think the United States is doing enough to basically focus on these extraordinarily important issues in Asia, given, you know, the fact we got troops, we got a lot of stuff that we're dealing with at the Middle East. Were we able, to, or is the U.S. ever able to, to make this transition that you've talked about? Yeah. Let me talk, let me talk about it in two respects. First of all, historically, uh, in terms of the outset of the Obama administration, where Kurt, you and I worked very closely together. Um, of, the president-elect and his team did an assessment of the global footprint of the United States 
and came to the judgment that we were underinvested in almost every respect uh, in Asia, uh, given the dynamics. You know, the, the, the United States had been, out of necessity, deeply focused in the Middle East because we had uh, thousands of troops there. We had two wars underway. Uh, and plus a, a, an aggressive war uh, against terrorism. Uh, and we were deeply, deeply invested uh, in almost every way in the Middle East. And we were underinvested uh, in Asia. And it was time to rebalance that, uh, that, that, that investment. Second, with respect to today, uh, I'd say a couple of things. One is, I, don't, I think that the United States needs a more comprehensive approach uh, to Asia right now. It's been quite focused. Uh, President Trump is very clear about this, focused on tariffs and North Korea uh, at this point. I think we would be a lot better off, and it would recognize the fact that most of the history of the 21st century, or a lot of the history of the 21st century is going to be written in Asia, it, we, the country would benefit by a comprehensive strategy that would include a number of assets, aspects, uh, including a much more uh, intensive focus on allies and supporting allies uh, in the region, a more broadly uh, applicable economic approach. I actually think that the economic approach that the Obama administration had that combined the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the so-called TPP, and a bilateral investment treaty negotiation with uh, with China and uh, and a, a working with allies to change um Change uh, Chinese approaches uh, in the trade area was the right was the, was the right approach, and indeed, China's approaches in trade are a concern to the United States and needed to be uh, addressed. Um, but we're what we're really kind of I think disadvantaging ourselves to the to the to the narrow uh, approach that we have taken. We have an opportunity had an opportunity to um, write the rules of the road for trade in. Uh, uh, in Asia. And today we're being disadvantaged. We're discriminated against uh, uh, in Asia right now in a number of trade relationships. And the world doesn't stand still. Uh, the TPP uh, minus the United States went ahead, is going ahead uh, in Asia. Uh, the Japan and the EU have entered into a, the largest bilateral trade agreement. Uh, the so-called RCEP agreement is going forward. So I think we've missed, a, we've missed an opportunity to have a bigger influence there. The three other things I'll just say about a more of a comprehensive strategy is on, on defense presence. Uh, it needs to be, I think, kind of a global look at this and to ensure, as we um, said that we were going to do, to have a significant percentage and a preponderance of our uh, uh, military presence in, uh, in Asia. And then two other things on, dip on diplomacy. Um, I would hope that the president would, uh, uh, would revisit his decision not to attend the major summits in Asia in uh, November. I think that's a mistake. Uh, it sends almost physically a signal of United States disengagement. And it's a mistake, I think, for the president. I would hope you would revisit that. And the last thing we can talk about is I do think we need to reemphasize human rights in, uh, in Asia. It's an essential part of US leadership. put a lot on the table there. So let's try to unpack some of this because we've on the trade front, we've come a long way from what you described would be a, a more comprehensive approach, TPP, working with our allies. Um, and instead, we've got these kind of very focused, uh, combative uh, tariffs. We're essentially in a trade war with, with China right now. You know, the White House would argue, at least we're doing something, at least we're being tough uh, on China. Uh, but as you point out, you know, this is a, a pretty isolated strategy. Just, you know, 
take on the White House argument, which yeah. is we're we're being tough. The previous guys weren't. We're getting results. People are are coming to the table and and making great deals with us. Let me say a couple of things about that. Uh, you know, the first is that uh, it's uh, absolutely the case that there were significant structural issues on trade and economics that had to be dealt with in Asia, and particularly with China. No doubt about that. And no matter who had gotten elected in 2016, whether it had been Secretary Clinton or President Trump, they were going to have to deal with these uh, uh, with these issues. Um, second, there's there's broad bipartisan support for addressing these issues in the United States. Um, and that these issues, these issues did not come upon us overnight. They have built up over time, and they need to be they need to be addressed. Uh, the third point, though, is is what's the most effective statecraft? What's the most effective te effective technique for moving uh, for moving forward? Uh, and you can put pressure on a on an economy, and you can you can have debates over tariffs, and you can you, know, you can uh, come to some agreements. Uh, and I expect that we will ultimately come to some agreements, but those agreements I think really fall short of what we could achieve. Frankly, mm. uh, that's the first point. Uh, and, you know, if you uh, and the second point is that you have to ask yourself what's the cost of your approach more broadly. Uh, and that's a really important dynamic to think about here, uh, which is that uh, we have, um, instead of putting China front and center from the beginning, which I think was the right, would have been the right approach, and working with allies around the world to address serious issues in the way that China competes in the world, particularly in the technology area, instead of doing that, we've undertaken uh, a, a set of uh, combative relationships on trade all over the world, instead of kind of working with uh, working with those countries in a focused way with respect to China. Now, the, now the administration seems to be moving in that uh, moving in that direction, but it would have been a much more effective uh, approach from the beginning. And the last thing I'll say is this: we have right now in in the policy sphere and the economic sphere a debate about these tactics, uh, concerns about tariffs, and um, yeah, and the president's. Um, you know, drive to get uh, a deal, right? Uh, you know, he's, he has opened up talks with uh, Japan uh, on trade. He concluded you know, some modest changes in the U.S.-Korea uh, trade agreement. But here's what's missing. What's missing in addition to a comprehensive strategy is a focus on the United States. Hmm. The entire focus of this discussion is on us stopping China from undertaking certain practices, which we have every right to object to and press hard on, and to seek reciprocity and to seek fairness in our relationship with China. That's all correct. But it's all focused on things we're trying to stop China from doing, as opposed to focus on the things that we should be doing as a country to be as competitive as we can be in the technology area and the industries of the future. That's the missing piece here, is what we can do and we're not doing in, term, in terms of a focused way, in terms of innovation policy, focusing squarely on AI and quantum computing and the key technologies of the future, uh, focusing on our relationship between the government and universities and the private sector, and the whole, the whole, whole range of things that we should be doing to increase our competitiveness long term. That's how the United States has, for the last half century or more, succeeded in one, and that's how we'll succeed when in the future. And so we that's just. A Real we America have no, first policy, and we've had no real discussion about that. We just, we just, have, uh, we just ended into a significant tax cut in the United States, which has resulted in pretty strong economic growth. But during the course of that discussion, I didn't see any discussion on the investment side in really contemplating how the United States continues to win in the technology space yeah, and the it, technology of the future. It's an It's a really uh, great perspective because the president obviously campaigned on, as has been arguing 
he's the one who is protecting America and defending America first. And uh, your observation is it flips that on its head and and basically says we're out trying to stop China while not doing anything about our own uh, economy, our own workforce, our own innovation. It's That's fair. the long-term strategy. And again, it's, it's rooted in history, right? You know, the American system since World War II has been a hugely successful system that had, Walter Isaacson calls it this, you know, kind of magic triangle of intersection between government basic fundamental research and development and the universities and the private sector. And that is it. That's, that's, a, that's the missing piece to our China mm -hmm. strategy. So, Tom, I, I think that's a powerful argument that there are some structural reasons why uh, U.S.-China relations are likely to be more contentious over time. Not long ago, Vice President Pence gave a speech that had some of the features that you laid out in terms of areas that we would compete. I think what was notable about the speech, and I think in some quarters has caused some anxiety, is that he is focusing on alleged areas of Chinese manipulation and engagement inside American domestic institutions, universities, think tanks, law firms, et cetera, et cetera, almost suggesting that the kind of fifth column kind of stuff. And I think there's some worry that this will trigger the kind of McCarthyite, you know, uh, who's close to China. How do you perceive that? And how do you think that's going to play out over time? Well, a couple of things. Number one, it is absolutely the case that the United States is in a much more competitive posture vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, that relationship is in a much more competitive phase uh, today. That, that's, that's a fact. And I think, frankly, that these tensions are, are structural. They're broadening, as was laid out in the Pence, uh, Vice President Pence's speech. And I think some of them are long, and they're long-term. Uh, it'll be a, it'll be a kind of a, kind of a, it's kind of a structural set of competitions that the United States uh, has uh, is going to have to engage in. Second, um, you know, Vice President Pence's speech was a list of concerns, yeah. uh, but it's it's the challenge. The three of us have all worked on foreign policy speeches for a long time. It's always the challenge from the descriptive and diagnostic right to the policy recommendations right. and action pieces yeah. of the speech. It's always the weakest part of the yeah, it's, of this presentation. That's right? a really good point. But you notice in almost all the major speeches of the administration to date on Iran or whatever, a lot of laying down of how we're doing it better and you know what the critiques are, but very short on prescription. Yeah, yeah I'll come back to that because it's an important uh, uh, process point about foreign policy making in the United States. Uh, you know, Kurt, uh, before I became Deputy National Security Advisor at the outset of the Obama administration, I had the good fortune to work with our good friend, the late Sandy Berger, on a paper that you chartered. Uh, for the Aspen Strategy Group mm -hmm. on uh, um, the National Security Council, its structure mm -hmm. and its processes. And one of the most important things I took away from that study and away from my own approach as National Security Advisor and, and, uh, and Deputy National Security Advisor was the importance in policymaking of focusing on the execution and uh, part of foreign policy. Uh, you know, the policy world many times kind of will spend months Coming up to the coming up with the right conclusions and diagnostics, right? But the, it's the execution and accountability is mm -hmm. really where uh, foreign policy uh, is uh, is is kind of is, is kind of is won or lost. Now, on the Pence speech, I do think that uh, it's certainly appropriate for the United States uh, to uh, protect its assets, uh, to take all the steps it needs to take to ensure that its technologies and other intellectual property is not being 
uh, stolen, uh, to um, insist on appropriate behavior by people who work inside our uh, inside our borders, uh, and we do have this broadening competition, which has to be which has to be which has to be addressed. Um, but we have other we have other challenges too. Yeah. So, Tom, I just want to ask you, uh, so you've worked with all these interesting communities. You've talked about your legal training and lawyers and Rich related to your experience, your political experience, and obviously a deep experience now in foreign policy, national security. So recently you made this transition, and now you're working a lot with really the most influential, high-flying investors, global investors in the world. What's that compute? What's that community like in terms of decision making? How would you compare and contrast, you know, how decisions are made in a national security realm? Of, you know, you were at the table at the head of the table at the White House for many years. What's it like now when you work with these guys? What's what's similar? What's different? I'll say two or three things. Um, number one is that, uh, you know, purposeful management. Thinking hard about your structure and your process matters in both spheres. Uh, you know, Dwight Eisenhower once said that uh, you know a, uh, a good process won't uh, guarantee you a good outcome, but a bad process will almost guarantee you a bad outcome. Uh, and we've seen that in, in, in national security throughout history. If you go back and look at a number of the biggest mistakes that the United States has made, uh, Vietnam. The Iraq War, you'll see a process failure. Kurt, you just reviewed Max Hastings' book on Vietnam and the Financial Times. If you go back and look at Gordon Goldstein's book, for example, um, H.R. McMaster's uh, book, uh, on it, there were real process failures there. And so having a decision-making process where all the relevant opinions come to the table are carefully considered in a timely and fair way is, I've it's, it's key. It's key in government, and it's absolutely critical uh, in business. Uh, in business uh, as well. Number two is that uh, it is also uh, obviously a tight focus, and uh, on talent is the same in both in both in mm. both spheres, right? You know, um, and uh, the third piece is that thinking about uh, your organization as a team. Uh, you know, if I go back and and try to assess where we are in the Trump administration, they really have paid a high price for a poor transition. Uh, you know, and, that, and that's all about structure, and it's all about process, and it's all about talent. Uh, and it's taken them a long time, frankly, to, uh, in some places, they really haven't recovered from a lot of the roots of their problems that was in that, that were in that, uh, in that transition. So there are, there are, there are absolutely... Uh, um, uh, similarities between the two spheres. The other two things I'll say is this: is that uh, geopolitics obviously has taken a, a you know an important uh, place in, uh, in in investing decisions around the world. Given that we have, you know, today um, you know, a, a large number of unstable and volatile situations around the world in the geopolitical sphere. And the last thing I'll say is that increasingly public companies are called upon. Uh, to um, enunciate and act on on values uh, and in the public sphere, and seen as having to take up a number of issues and challenges that typically would have been the providence of government. Yeah, Tom, I want to uh, focus on that because you mentioned human rights earlier. Yeah. 
Uh, you mentioned diplomacy and human rights, two issues I wanted to, to talk to you about in our approach in, in Asia. But but generally, you know, as as we think about the current administration's approach, again, it's highly transactional. Uh, values are kind of a luxury that you focus on at some other time. This is playing out as we tape this episode. The Saudi journalist is is missing, feared dead. And, you know, the president reminds everyone that we have large defense deals and therefore uh, you know, we, we can't focus too much on freedom of the press or human rights. Now, this is a big shift in the U.S. approach uh, abroad. I wonder if you can just say why you mentioned human rights as something that matters and, and how that serves uh, American interests to, to refocus on it. Yeah, I think a couple of things. Uh, one is that um, the United States is not just another country. Uh, the United States' approach uh, to providing public goods and leadership uh, around the world since World War II has been spectacularly beneficial for us. Mm. Uh, it has resulted in uh, uh, prosperity and security uh, and has made the United States the leading nation in the world. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a different approach. You know, it's not an approach that seeks to conquer, right? It's not an approach that sees the world in a zero-sum uh, formula. Uh, it's an approach where the United States is seen as a net positive contributor to the, to the world. Mm. Uh, and as a result, it has the trust of the world. And as a result, it was able to really set the rules of the road, the way countries interact with each other, to set up the institutions, which have worked tremendously to our benefit since, uh, since World War II. So the United States is just not another country that would engage in kind of zero-sum uh, zero-sum kinds of uh, uh, interaction. The second thing is, is that this leadership uh, has been uh, a tremendous important part, tremendously important part of our influence in the world. Uh, and third, our leadership on human rights has made a difference around the world, and it has actually driven nations and regions in a much more positive fashion in terms of our own interests, mm -hmm. uh, you know, particularly if you look around the world in the in the advance of uh, in the advance of democracy. So uh, it's 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 who we are as a country. Uh, we're not just another another country, uh, and it has been has worked to our benefit, uh, and it has a big it has had a big impact in the world. And it is just a mistake to take that aspect out of your foreign policy. Uh, it's just a mistake, and and no other leading power in the world has the ability. Uh, to have that kind of record that we've had, uh, and to have the style of leadership, if you will, that's been so effective for the United States over the last half century or more. I want to also, it's its a perfect explanation. I really appreciate that. I also want to talk about diplomacy, and, and you're a, a State Department veteran. Uh, uh, your mentor was former Secretary of State. And, and you and all of us witnessed this kind of gutting of the State Department, its budget, its staffing, its resources. It's obviously had an impact, but it's also part of... Uh, I think a larger strategy, which is a more unilateral approach. We mentioned TPP, we're out of, but we're also out of the Paris Climate Agreement, out of the Iran nuclear deal, um, where diplomacy is definitely not kind of the first uh, option that, that the administration seeks. And so we have a smaller footprint, smaller budget. And I wonder if you can just talk through uh, the impact of that, and and you're out around the world uh, yeah. seeing the 
uh, I can tell you from, you know, when Kurt and I travel, we feel, and we talk to foreign leaders and, and other senior officials, just a sense of American retrenchment. Uh, but tell us, tell us the impact of, of this. What's well, a significant impact? A couple of things. The, the, the people in the United States government, and Kurt knows this very well, who would speak most passionately about the need for diplomacy and the need for a fully funded State Department and the need for a superb core of diplomats. And we've lost quite a few senior diplomats in the last couple of years, um, some real legends in the Foreign Service, frankly. The people in this government who would speak most passionately about this are our, are our general officers right. mm -hmm. uh, and our Defense Department senior leadership. That's so true. Uh, I think that, that, that is where you would hear uh, again, kind of the most passionate defense of diplomacy in the mm. government is from the generals. And why is that? Uh, because they know that that's the first line of defense. Uh, and the uh, and having to move to uh, a a war or a military option uh, is uh, is highly costly for the highly costly for the country. Now, you know, we had a significant negative impact on the on the State Department during uh, during Secretary Tillerson's tenure. Um, uh, Secretary Pompeo has a much closer relationship uh, to the president, and he said, and I think he's working on trying to revive uh, the morale in the building, but it will take, it'll actually take a, a commitment to the resources uh, in the, uh, the building. And the last thing it'll take, of course, is a commitment to diplomacy as a policy. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's, I think that's been, I think that's been lacking. So Tom, if I ask you to put all your hats on together, uh, and uh, ask you to play a role that you will be playing in the uh, year or two ahead. So if you had to give a candidate who's going to challenge in 2020 some general themes and some specifics about how to contest on foreign policy, national security, what would you advise? And I, I guess the question I have is that it's clear that we have, uh, Democrats have a lot of concerns with President Trump, but I find that we're, you know, there still is, quite a lot of churn about what exactly, um, beyond some gen general bromides about diplomacy and, you know, uh, working with partners in the world, what would you recommend in terms of how to proceed to contest on a foreign policy footing the next election? Yeah, well, that's really not my area of expertise um, uh, at this point, uh, as, it, as it might have been sometime in the past. But I think that uh, a couple of things. One is that uh, this concept of, of uh, who the United States is and, and who it leads in the world. This, I think, may be the most important, uh, the most important issue, and it's this, that there is now uh, a contest in the world uh, over ideology and really basic approaches to governing. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese government, uh, headed by Xi Jinping at this point, is putting on offer, I think, Kurt, this is your area more than mine, I think the Chinese have put on offer a full alternative model uh, to the, the, the democratic model. You know, as you've written, the, uh, the, the idea that as China became wealthier, it would transition into a Western liberal political model is not what's happened. Uh, and instead, we are in a much more competitive posture. And we see similar challenges uh, to fundamental precepts of democracy uh, in our system of government uh, and individual rights. We see similar challenges from uh, Russia uh, and a number of its uh, partners through, throughout Europe and the world. And uh, the United States uh, as a country needs to recognize this challenge uh, to and very, very strongly underscore 
the strengths of our democracy and what it has brought our people, and to sharply draw the contrast uh, uh, between the United States and the systems it's being challenged by right now. There are very disturbing polling numbers, which you're aware of, uh, where young people don't have the same kind of faith in democracy or don't see it as necessary as, as people who've, who've lived through mm. some, uh, some experiences. So I think the most important thing to do is to recognize that there's a battle underway, that there's a lot at stake, uh, and that the country uh, needs to, uh, and our allies, uh, need to be led in an effort to defend uh, the the systems, the, the rights, the approach that we that we have, and that needs to start, in my judgment, uh, that needs to start in our schools. And I would be for a very uh, aggressive approach on civics education, critical thinking, uh, constitutional literacy, digital literacy uh, in our schools, because technology exacerbates these challenges. Tom, this has been terrific, um, incredibly impressive um, tour of the horizon and lots of uh, grist for our mill in terms of thinking about the U.S. role in Asia, uh, our political future, and uh, what the United States has to do to maintain its position on the global stage. Yeah, and Tom, I would say you talked a lot about mentors. Uh, I will say it's just been great to have you as a mentor uh, over the years uh, as well, and and. Uh, what a thrill and honor it is to have you here on, on Tea Leaves. And we want to thank all of our subscribers for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Tom, thank you so much. Thanks, thank Rich. You, thank Tom. Kurt. Thanks thank for you. having me. Bye-bye.